Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 724 with Muriel Wilkins. If you've heard of this executive presence thing, Muriel breaks it down in terms of what it really means and how you can get yours better. So you'll learn, one, what executive presence really means, two, the two muscles you need to train for executive presence, and three, the key factors that affect your confidence. So if you want to check out the show notes with the transcript or the links to Adam's that we talk about here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP724. And at awesomeatyourjob.com, there's a ton of cool stuff from the full text transcripts to the email summaries. Check it out at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here is Muriel's story. Muriel Wilkins is the managing partner and co-founder of Paravis Partners and a C-suite advisor and executive coach with a strong track record of helping already high-performing senior leaders take their effectiveness to the next level. Muriel is the host of the Harvard Business Review podcast, Coaching Real Leaders, and is the co-author with Amy Sue of Own the Room, Discover Your Signature Voice to Master Your Leadership Presence. Big thanks to Muriel for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Muriel. Muriel, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to dig in and chat about executive presence. And maybe you could start us off by saying, what the heck does that even mean? (laughs) Well, you know, that's what actually sent me on a track to figure out what it means, because uh, a lot of people don't know what it means. Yes, it's a term that's used so broadly and loosely. And it's a term where many of my clients, my coaching clients, were getting feedback on their executive presence. And quite frankly, when I would ask, well, what does it mean? They're like, I have no idea. So from my perspective, and based on the work that I've done with folks and and my research on it, executive presence is really about how others experience you. And more specifically, uh, when I think about it from a leadership presence is when others are in your presence, do they feel like they're in the presence of a leader? And that has nothing to do with where you sit hierarchically in the organization, it all has to do with what you exude. Okay, certainly. And so I can see how that really is frustrating for the individual. Like, it's like, I I don't know. It's like, That's right. That's right. <laughs> so and that's based and, on and, someone and, else's perception. Of. Exactly. And even worse, it's like, well, I don't know. But, you know, Joe has it. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So... That's such so the vibe. It's like if I if someone has executive presence and I'm in the presence of someone with executive presence, mm-hmm. I feel like, wow, I'm I'm with a leader. OK, well, well then I'm, I'm curious. You tell me, is it like you either got it or you don't? 
And what if you don't? What do you do? Yeah. I mean, that that in it itself is sort of demoralizing as a follow-up to getting feedback on executive presence, right? It's like, you need to work on this, but you know, can you really work on it? Because you're either born with it or you're not. And you know, if there's one thing that I've tried to do around this topic of executive presence is really debunk the myth that it's just something that you naturally have. Uh, it's something that you could definitely build and develop over time. The key is developing a presence that's, that is also authentic to you because it's not mimicking everyone else, right? It's about having an impact in a way that's relevant to others while still maintaining a sense of who you are and what you bring to the table and your own authenticity so that you're not a chameleon. Yeah, gotcha. So that sounds that sounds super. Could you, let's maybe dig into maybe the particular components uh, and, and approaches to make that transition happen well, but maybe could you start by sharing an inspiring story of someone who, who got the word, hey, you need better executive presence, and then what they did and, and the results that, that happened from that turnaround? Yeah, well, I'll share my own story. Because uh, I was the receiver of that feedback way back when. And the feedback that I got was that I needed to tone it down, right? Oh, and, boy. Um, and it was like, <laughs> okay, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, my volume sounds just fine. But what they were talking about was, again, my presence was not one that was, uh, with the, those particular stakeholders, one that really exuded the position that I had as an executive and as a leader at that time. And so that is something that I think many people have experienced, whether it's you need to tone it down or whether you need to be more confident or you also you often hear it in terms of adjectives, right? Be more this, be more inspiring, be more assertive. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, just as I described with your presence, it's the feeling that you give somebody. An adjective is not a verb, so it doesn't really give the concrete steps of what you're able to do. You know, I often say if somebody has received the feedback of be more confident, it's not like you wake up one day and say, well, today, you know, I decide not to be confident. Like everybody wants to show up as confident. So when we think about executive presence and what are the steps to really get there, the first place is to recognize what is the impact that you want to make, right? What is the impression that or the feeling that you want to leave people with. And when you think about what the impression is or the impact that a leader or an executive or somebody that you want to, you know, quote unquote, follow has on you, it's usually two things, the combination of two things. They are credible and they're relatable. Mm -hmm. And so the intersection of those two things is actually what makes up or what makes you feel like somebody has executive presence, okay? Because they have that impact on you. And so the first place to start is understanding that those are the two levers that you have and then determining of those two levers, which one am I exuding and which one am I not? Or am I exuding both? Or am I not exuding any of them? Mm -hmm. So it starts with some self-awareness around what the impact is that you're actually having. Because if you can figure that out, right, that it's either the credibility, the relatability, then you can figure out, well, what do I do about each of those muscles? Yeah, yeah, I love that a lot. And in terms of that first step, I think it's easy to skip over. Like, yeah, 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 give me some tactics, Muriel. But but no, no, it's so foundational because I guess I, I think I've made my own mistakes with this in terms of 
any types of presenting of yourself. Like I think I've had headshots done and I've made the mistake before. I picked a headshot because like, ooh, I look really hot in that one. <laughs> so that's, I think that's my best photo. So that's going to go with it. It's like, you might look the most aesthetically pleasing in your opinion, Pete, mm-hmm. but actually that's not what we're trying to accomplish here in terms of the target demographic and audience and impression that we're sending. Like I'm not, these aren't modeling headshots, you know, to, <laughs> these are for a speaking agency to get me booked to, to do keynotes. And, and likewise, that comes up in, in LinkedIn in terms of it's like in your profile and your picture, how do you want to present those elements and the headlines and the experiences? Because there's, there's a variety of flavors you could take. Like if you're trying to represent yourself as a model or a stand-up comedian, that's going to have a different vibe than if you're trying to do this executive presence thing. And you're seeing it when it comes to executive presence in professional workplace environments, generally what we're after is conveying credible and relatable. So that's awesome. That's right. And and I mean, you know, it, it, it also goes beyond the professional workplace, right? If you think about your friends or the people you associate with or your family or your partner, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I want my partner to be credible and relatable, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. So it really also just becomes around what do we tend to look for as humans in others that gives us, you know, a sense that we can be confident in them and that we have some type of connection to them. And so those are why they end up being the two muscles. Well, so then in in practice, what are some key do's and don'ts to convey all the more credibility and relatability? Mm -hmm. So the way that um, I tend to think about it is almost like conditioning an athlete, right? When you think about an athlete who conditions themselves in their preferred sport or their sport of choice, they have to be, if they're a master at that sport, they have to be conditioned at three levels. They have to be conditioned from a mental standpoint. They have to be conditioned from a skill standpoint, the skill of that particular sport. And they have to be conditioned physically for the sport that they're playing or competing in. Likewise, when you're trying to really master and train these muscles of credibility and relatability, again, mastering your leadership presence, you also have to condition yourselves at those three levels. And so what are those, right? So the first place is your mental conditioning. What's our mental conditioning when we think about our presence? It's the beliefs that you have. It's the thoughts and the assumptions that you have about yourself, about the other, about the situation. And understanding what those are and with no judgment of, is it a right thought or a wrong thought? You know, this is not like the power of positive thinking. It's more around, is that belief actually serving you in showing up as credible and relatable, right? So if if I don't have conviction around my message and conviction is just a belief, right? I believe in my message. I believe in what I'm saying, or I have knowledge about what I'm saying, then how in the heck am I going to show up as credible in what I have to say. So the first level is mental conditioning. And I'll tell you, Pete, that's the hardest one for people to get their head wrapped around, right? Because a lot of times it is about them dismantling the beliefs that they've had for an eternity, (laughs) okay? So that's the first place. The second level of conditioning is skill conditioning. And in our game of executive presence, that's your communication skills. And so what are the communication skills that allow you to show up, again, credible and relatable. It's quite simple. From a credibility standpoint, the communication skill is your ability to speak in a clear and concise way. Rambling does not define credibility. 
And on the relatability side, the key communication skill is the skill of being able to listen so that you can understand where the other is coming from, right? Understanding creates connection. And in between those two, we have the skill of how you frame your message and also how you handle questions, both in terms of how you ask them and how you answer them. So with my clients, we work on those four buckets, right? I, I try to simplify it. You don't have to know all the, you know, you don't have to know how to use every golf club in the bag. You just need to learn how to use a few of them. And then the last piece is your physical conditioning. And physical conditioning is, you know, your nonverbals, your body language, your appearance, even uh, your visibility and what message that sends across. And again, I'm not one to say, you know, here's what you, here are the, you know, five great body language postures that you need to hold for you to show up as a leader. You know, what it really comes down to is, is there alignment between the way you are holding yourself non-verbally or what you're communicating non-verbally? Is there alignment between that and what you say and your assumptions? And so we're looking for alignment along all three of those conditioning levels and that they're not working against each other and that they're also not working against your desired outcome of being credible and relatable. Thank you. Well, Mural, this is so powerful in terms of, okay, we've, we've got the set of things to, to be working on and the athlete analogy is, is swell. So let's talk about the mental and the skill and the physical components of, of the conditioning. I'm thinking you said it with beliefs, thoughts, and assumptions not about good or bad, right or wrong, but rather, is it serving you? Is it helpful? Is it working out for you? And you mentioned sort of the, the beliefs in, in the message, like you fundamentally buy what you're, you're selling. And, and I have a, and I think this is probably universally true. It's like, I, I just cannot sell something I don't believe in. I've turned out a lot of prospective sponsors. <laughs> turned out a lot of them. I hear you. And so, uh, there's there's that. And then I, I think there's also some beliefs, thoughts, assumptions about sort of you, yourself, what other people think of you. Like, oh, everyone, everyone's looking at me. Oh, they think I'm stupid. Oh, they don't think I'm senior enough to be in this room. They think I'm I, I'm a loser. They think I'm stuttering. They think I'm saying like or so and, um, you know, too much. So it seems like there's there's a whole host of potential beliefs, thoughts, assumptions that can be not serving you. And tell me, are, are there some go-to beliefs that you find helpful, reassuring, confidence boosting? And, and how do we condition ourselves to, to land there instead of the unhelpful places? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, a big one in terms of when you're trying to boost your confidence, as you said, is around the belief that you don't have to always have the answer and that you are in the room to share the value and, and you have to understand what it is, the value that you bring to that table and that the value isn't always, and most times it's not, about having the answer and knowing everything and being an expert on everything. And so when people tend to show up as lacking confidence, they place an expectation on themselves on what it means for them to show up successfully in that meeting or at that table. And what I have them do is recalibrate, well, is that even realistic, right? What is the value that you bring? Why are you in that meeting? And when they're able to define it and then actually stay in their lane 
in terms of what they're able to do, they can have confidence in it because they know exactly what they're there to do. So that's one example, right? On the flip side, if somebody's working on the relatability aspect, the belief that often gets in the way is, I already know the answer, which then shuts them down from listening, right? And so the belief that would serve them better in terms of showing up in a more connected way, in a more relatable way, is to come in with the thought of, I have a perspective around what needs to be done, and I'm open to hearing others' perspectives, right? So it's a, it's a slight reframe. It's a slight reframe. And it doesn't mean that, if you'll notice, it doesn't mean that you're disregarding that you have the answer. Like, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, you probably do. But let's expand it a little bit. Let's open the possibilities a little bit, right? When people stay too attached to their belief, it creates constriction. It creates closed both in terms of what you have to offer, which gets in the way of confidence, as well as what you are open to from others, which then creates a disconnection. So all I try to do is get them to see that there are different ways that they can think about, again, themselves, the situation or the other, that might then open them up to different ways of communicating or, or physically showing up. Right. And and so then once you you know and have heard the belief once, you're like, okay, yes, Muro, that sounds like a good, fine, solid belief. That is true. <laughs> I wish it was I, that easy. <laughs> I would like to land upon and return to again and again. But how do you, I don't know, condition, train, reinforce, lock in those neural pathways so that that's where we go? Yeah. I mean, look, this is right. Like if we boil it down, like this is what most people have, a, again, a very difficult time with. It takes practice. I mean, this is what we're talking about here is mental discipline. And so I try to get folks to just really focus on one at a time. Let's let's hone in on one. And they just practice it. They practice it. They practice it. And I try to get them to practice it in real situations. So not just thinking about it conceptually, because, I mean, everybody can do something conceptually, right? I can speak conceptually about how I can do the Ironman, but it's very different to actually go do the Ironman. And so, you know, I get them to practice it, practice it, practice it until it becomes more natural. And when they start seeing that their actions, because again, it's not just the mental, it's also the skills and communication and the physical, when the skill conditioning and the physical conditioning reinforces those beliefs, then it helps. So it kind of creates a cycle, right? It's holistic rather than just, oh, I only need to do one thing and not the other. Certainly. And so then when you say practice it, as I think about the athlete analogy again, I, I can imagine, you know, practicing free throws or throwing the football or conditioning strength, you know, bench press, squat, deadlift in the, in the weight room. What, what does practicing a belief look, sound, feel like in practice? What am I doing when I am, when I am practicing a belief? So at a very practical level, you know, let's say I'm coming onto this show with you, right? And I can pause for 30 seconds beforehand and say, and really pause and, and ask myself, what am I thinking about what I'm about to go into? What do I think about me, right? Like, let me really try to understand what my beliefs are going in about myself. Am I, do I believe I, I, I'm going to mess up? Do I believe I'm not prepared? Do I believe I don't know what this is about? You know, what do I believe about the show? What do I believe about Pete? What do I believe about what's going on around me? And if I conclude that those things are not going to help me show up on this show in a way that is credible and relatable, then I say, okay, like, what thoughts do I need to focus on right now? It's not that those things might not be true, but let me put them on the back burner for a little bit. 
I can come back, you know, so for me, the way that I'll do it, I'll take with, I'll say this to my clients is just like say, hey, you know what? Negative belief or belief that doesn't serve you, I'll check back in with you in 30 minutes and we'll deal with you. But you just stay over there right now and let me focus on the ones that help. Okay. So it truly is around being able to pause, having awareness around what you're thinking, and then being able to redefine the thought. It's a three-step process. It is not easy, Pete. This is, again, the, the stuff around mental discipline. And it's hard because it, it's inside of us. It doesn't operate outside of us, okay? But it's what creates, you know, to, from my standpoint, it's what makes the most sustainable impact. Lovely. Thank you. Well, well, I appreciate you, you zooming in there. And, and that is handy in terms of making sure that you you do have time for that silence as opposed to, oh, oh, go, go, go. Right. Uh, finish right. up, finish up the last words on the last deck, page, <laughs> slide in the last seconds, and then grab the laptop and, and head on into to the room or the Zoom call or whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, what the funny thing, Pete, is like most people will say, well, I don't have time for that. Right. Like, and I'm like, it doesn't take a ton of time. Like we just did it, you know, in 30 seconds, right, in a minute. It does not take a ton of time. So I'll tell my clients, like, look, as you're brushing your teeth in the morning, kind of go through the meetings that you have that day as you're well, people aren't commuting these days. But as they you know, as they commute, as you're walking the dog. Go the day before, go through your Outlook calendar, whatever calendar you use, what are the meetings and just do a quick, you know, a quick mental check, right, around what you're thinking going in versus it's the warm up. I consider it the warm up. You don't wait till you're on the field to look around and say, oh, who am I dealing with? Who am I playing against? What position do I play? No, you do that. That whole warm up happens way before you're on the field. Well said. Well said. All right. So that's the mental game or a uh, piece of it. <laughs> How about we talk about communication skills? I mean, we could spend hours talking about these these four skills. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, do you have any particular tips, tricks, tools, tactics that or do's and don'ts that make all the difference when it comes to listening or, or speaking clearly and concisely? Yeah. So with listening, speaking clearly and concisely, framing, questioning, here's the thing. These are not about just, hey, I just need to know these skills. Because, you know, quite frankly, most people are already using them. The question is, are you using them in a strategic way? Are you clear around what it is, again, the impact you're trying to make? And given the impact you're trying to make, then being able to dial back and say, if that's the impact I'm trying to make, then what communication skill would increase the probability that I'm making that impact? Okay. And so when you start thinking about it that way, which is so then you can make a you have a choice around what you're doing rather than just being on default. You say, all right, if I'm trying to create a connection with the other person or with this group of people or I want to come off as engaging, then it would behoove me to listen more. Right. Why? Because when somebody feels heard and understood for whatever reason, it creates connection. When we feel understood by the other it deepens the connection. And I'm not talking about like we have to get into a you know deep, intimate relationship with everybody. It's just a feeling of like, yeah, you get me, right? But when you have somebody, when you're in the, I mean, you've probably experienced it. When you're faced with somebody and you're like, oh my God, they don't get me at all. There's no relatability. There's no connection. So listening is the key skill. I'm sure there are others, but the core skill. And it's not, there are different levels of listening. You don't have to go 
to the deepest level every single time. Again, it depends on what you're trying to do. But I will say, if your goal is to influence and inspire or inspire somebody, the more you're trying to inspire others, the deeper the level of listening you have to go into to really understand what is going on with them, okay? On the flip side, which is the skill of what we call structured advocacy, the skill of being able to speak clear and concisely, what I tell folks is always start with the headline first, (laughs) right? And then drill down to the data. Most people who cannot speak confidently will tend to share all of the data and then they they give you the conclusion or the answer, you know, 20 minutes later. And I try to get them to flip that. Give me the answer. Give me the headline. And then give me the three supporting facts or data points or rationale that support your thesis, let's say, or your headline. And number it. Because, you know, it's kind of silly to say I have three points, but then you go on to number 20, right? So that in and of itself helps one be concise. Uh, so those are some, you know, some tips around those two. And th- to be honest, the most critical one is the communication skill of framing, because framing is all about how you set context. And context helps determine whether you can get other individuals to interpret the message that you're giving in a way that's similar to how you want them to interpret it. Left without context, people are going to interpret the message based on their own beliefs, assumptions, biases, and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if it's the most critical, we, we must talk more about this, this framing. So how does one frame well? Can you give us some examples? Sure. So, you know, one that people face many, many times is you walk into a meeting and there's an agenda, but there's not a clear sense of what outcomes you're looking to drive to through that meeting. So you have good conversations You leave the meeting and it was like, hmm, what did we actually accomplish, (laughs) right? And so a a great example of framing is what we call outcomes-driven framing, being able to start your message or your conversation with, here are the outcomes that I want to drive to. I'm going into a meeting. All right. So what we're trying to drive to by the end of this meeting is making a decision on X. Now, why is that helpful? Because everybody in that meeting at that point, or increases the chances that everybody in the meeting at that point will interpret or take in the discussion with a sense that there's a decision that needs to be made, rather than they're taking it in as an FYI, they're taking it in as a, you know, a point of contention, they're taking it in as, you know, whatever, uh, the, the list goes on. So... Framing from an outcome standpoint really helps. What's another example of framing? Another example of framing is uh, what we call strategic framing. This is when you give strategic context or bigger picture context or the 30,000 foot altitude context. Where is this particularly helpful? It's helpful when you are communicating up, communicating to people who are more senior than you. So you frame your message in a way that's relevant to them and what their strategic agenda is, rather than how it's relevant to you, you know, at the 10,000 foot altitude. Mm-hmm. And could you give us an example of that in practice in terms of, okay, there's a thing I want to make happen and I got to give it some strategic framing. So higher up folk in, engage in, and, and want to back it. Can you hear how that might sound? Yeah. Let's say that, you know, you work in the HR function, right? And you're proposing an initiative around leadership development. So- Framing it from your context, 
might sound something like, you know, leadership development is really helpful in terms of cultivating people and creating engagement in the workforce and then give, you know, whatever the initiative is. Framing it from a strategic level is saying, I know one of our key strategic pillars this year is talent excellence and retention of our employees. We've talked about how by the end of next year, we want to achieve a workforce of X numbers that are whatever it is, right? It's it's tied to the strategic pillars of the organization or or the main business priorities of the organization. And so you start there and then say, so therefore, this leadership development program or initiative is in support of that. Okay. So you tie it directly to whatever the organizational objectives are. That, that's super. And I'm thinking like some organizations have maybe... Mm, if I may be so bold, too many organizational objectives mm-hmm. that, 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 that the higher up you're communicating with may well have forgotten that that was one of these strategic initiatives. And you're like, oh, oh, that is one of them, isn't it? Okay. And you got something for me to make that happen. <laughs> oh, and I don't know of anything else that's making that happen. So yeah, let's go ahead and do what you're saying, Muriel. <laughs> that brings up stuff to like funny story, Pete, because I ran into that once and I framed it strategically around what you know, the top brass at the organization had said was important for them. And they kind of were like, huh, no, I don't. And I said, well, look at the homepage of your website. Like it says it right there. And so they all pulled it up on their phone and they're like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, we actually said this was one of our strategic priorities. <laughs> so to your point, sometimes they forget what the priorities are. So, and well, and then that just makes you wonder how much of the priority is it truly? And how much of it was sort of a word salad committee production versus a, wow, we've really thoughtfully clarified and drilled down into that, which is the huge, most impactful levers. Well, that's that's a whole nother conversation. Strategic, uh, critical thinking, priority matters. Uh, let's hear about the physical view of things, the nonverbals, the body language, the appearance. So we want to have alignment so it's not sort of contradictory throughout. And, and, our, and I guess everyone might have their own tics and that they have, and, and maybe I've heard video is a great way to assess them. I, I'm curious, are, are there any particular things you've seen again and again and again in terms of, hey, start doing this, stop doing that? Like, uh, it makes all the difference and it's so easy to fix. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think, again, it depends what it is, the impact that you're trying to make. One of the things I tell my client is, look, if the feedback you're getting is that you show up as abrasive, and when you ask, you know, well, why do I show up as abrasive? People are like, well, you tend to yell a lot, and you always have a scowl on your face. If I say that to a client, the client says, well, I want to show up as abrasive. Well, then we're done. We're good. Because their nonverbals are giving them the outcomes they want, right? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, apparently. But usually that's not what people want. Again, they want to show up as credible and or engaging and relatable. And so from a nonverbal standpoint, the place to first start is what is under my control, okay? If I happen, which I am, I'm five foot three, right? I cannot change that. I mean, I may add a little bit of height by wearing heels, but, you know, out of my control that I'm five foot three. Right. So if I want to give the impression that I'm confident and height is not on my side, because for whatever reason, height might make me seem a little more dominant or, or whatnot. So, so what else is my at my disposal? Well, how I sit at the table when I physically sit at the table. Do I shrink to the back of my seat? Do I slouch back, therefore retreating me even more? Or do I lean actually lean forward on the table, pull up my 
chair to the table. I've been known to, you know, if I walk into a meeting and the seat level is too low and makes me seem even lower than my five foot three size, then I raise it, you know, to maximum height, right? Uh, So these are things that are under your control. And quite frankly, it's not just about the impression you make on the other. It's also how it makes me feel. You know, I don't want to feel small at that table. The other part is your voice. And so your voice says a lot about you. Number one, you want to be heard in that meeting? Well, we better be able to hear you, right, from a projection standpoint. I have I have twins, by the way. They're 14 years old. And so I'm constantly in this, I can't hear you. So, you know, you're mumbling. Mumbling will never get your message across. And so even from that basic level, with your voice, do you have a some poise around your voice? Well, what does that sound like? It usually sounds with people who are comfortable taking pauses as they speak. They speak much more in a deliberate way rather than just, you know, speeding through it and never slowing down. That's in your control. So with all of these things, whether it's your eye contact, your gestures, your voice, your posture, it's not about, again, a right or a wrong, which I think is the way that it's been positioned a lot of times. It's more around, is the way you're carrying these things Are they going to have the impact that you want to have in this environment, right? In this context, because like take something like eye contact in the Western culture, you know, eye contact exudes confidence for whatever reason, but in other cultures, it it, it does not. So it also has to be culturally and contextually relevant. So executive presence in and of itself is very situational. It's very dynamic. It's not this, you know, do it this way and that's it. Okay. Well, so let's say adopting the context specifically of we're in a professional United States business environment and looking to be credible and relatable and persuasive in what we have to say so that it's taken seriously and, and action is is taken and, and things move forward. Uh, I'm curious, are there any particular appearance things you might quickly suggest that we adjust? Yeah. So here's my rule of thumb when it comes to appearance. Let it not be distracting and detracting from every other thing that you're doing. That's it, right? I have many people who ask me things like, you know, should I cut my hair? Should I cut my beard? Should I not wear braids? Should I, you know, straighten my hair and not have my hair curly? Should I dress a different way? Should I wear suits? Should I wear pants? Should I, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And I I say, okay, in the environment that you're in, would your appearance distract in any way? Okay. So I share the story around With me, I have clients, you know, all along the spectrum. I have some organizations that I work with who are extremely conservative, very traditional. And then I have clients, you know, where I have some nonprofits that I work with that might, you know, that are in the inner city small. If I were to go to my small nonprofits dressed the same way that I go to my traditional conservative clients, it's not that the way I'm dressing is bad. It just would make me stand out in a way that then, you know, maybe makes me feel confident, but doesn't necessarily create or engender any form of connection with the clients that I'm serving, right? So so it truly is about to what extent is the physical energy that you exude distracting or detracting from what you're trying to do versus supporting you. 
So dealt the same way as we do at beliefs. That's good. And I'm curious, and this might be maybe more of an advanced move, but are there times in which we do want to look a little different and distinctive from the audience in the room for a particular objective? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So, you know, let me back up a little bit from that question, because the goal is not, hey, I need to fit in, right? You still want to have it, you know, like I talk, I'm not the most like traditional conservative person, but, you know, again, I have these clients. So what I'm not going to do is wear like my most outlandish outfit, but I will wear a suit, but I might have some jewelry that, you know, that still is signature me, right? So I don't feel like I'm completely, quote unquote, selling out, right? Sure. But are there times when you may want to stand out a little bit? Yeah, to send it if you're, but, but know why you're doing it right? Know why you're doing it. So I'll give you an example, not just about appearance, actually, but more going back to kind of nonverbals. So if you're giving a presentation, you may have a choice between standing behind the podium or not using the podium at all. Well, when somebody asks me, should I use the podium? Should I not? I said, well, what, what, what impact do you want to make? What impression do you want to make? If you want to come off as very professorial and expert-like, by all means, stand behind the podium, right? If you want to show up as like the expert, <laughs> stand behind the podium. If you want to lean into engaging with the audience, trying to be relatable to the audience, don't stand behind the podium. So it always comes back to what do you want? And that's where a lot of people don't have clarity is even around what is it that they want, to, how they want to come off. Hmm. Perfect. Thank you. Well, Muriel, tell me anything else you want to make sure we mention before we hit the favorite things. Well, you know, this stuff, as I said before, takes a lot of practice and you never really fully stop because your context changes, you change, your assumptions change, your skills hopefully improve over time, how you physically show up changes. So you constantly have to think about in this moment, at this time, what is the impact I want to make? And then how do I get there? All right. Lovely. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The one that's really been resonating with me over the past couple of months, the past year, quite frankly, has been, and I, I can't, I know it comes from Buddhist teachings, but I can't quote who said it, is pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? My favorite one is with around the growth mindset, right? And the reframing, because I think it's the, the growth mindset does a lot of reframing uh, and Angela Duckworth's work around that, reframing around how we approach learning and how we approach, quite frankly, how we define success, that it's more about the effort rather than the outcome. All right. Thank you. And a favorite book? Favorite book. Um, my favorite book of the moment is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? My Outlook calendar. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and favorite habit? Favorite habit? Uh, I wish it was a more infused habit, but my favorite habit is meditating. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that you're known for and people quote back to you often? I say there's a favorite question that I ask my clients over and it. over again, and it is, what do you want? All right. <laughs> And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? 
So they can go check out my podcast at Harvard Business Review uh, called Coaching Real Leaders or go to coachingrealleaders.com. They can find more information about me and all of the ways that I work with folks at murielwilkins.com or paravispartners.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Figure out what you want and the impression you want to make and the outcomes that you want to drive to and then work backwards from there. All right, Muriel, thank you. This has been fun. I wish you lots of success and luck in the adventures to come. Thank you. This was great. I really love the way Muriel broke it down when it comes to executive presence. Like, what does that even mean? Well, it's about how the other person is perceiving you. And really, it is the impression you are conveying. Like, are you credible and are you relatable? And then breaking those down. I love it when we take something vague and broad and inactionable and make it super actionable. So big thanks to Mural. I hope you dug. And the show notes, the transcript, the links to Alan's we referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP724. Hope to catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.